Welcome to the Issa Rugby Podcast, where we bring you the latest news, updates, and interviews. With more insights from the Springboks. It is the Springboks champions of the world. The Junior Box, the Blitzbox, our two national women's teams, local competitions, and more. Good day and welcome to the fifth episode of the SA Rugby Podcast. My name is De Jong Borchard. In today's podcast, we go back in time, 25 years to be exact, and the Rugby World Cup in 1995, which the Springboks won here in South Africa. The tournament kicked off on 25 May and culminated with that unforgettable final at Ellis Park on 24 June. This is the first installment in a series that will look back at that glorious time in 1995. Our first guest was a pivotal member of the South African squad and ultimately played a massive role in their triumph. He needs no introduction. It's Springbok fly-off Joel Stransky. Can South Africa come up with it? They can. Back to Stransky, the drop goal again. I think that might have been touched in flight. So are we going to see a five-meter? Yes, we are. Touched in flight by the Aussies. Yes, and if you willfully try to charge down a kick and it hits you and it goes over the dead ball line as it's happened then, then the referee will award the scrum to the attacking side. A lot of space on the right, and they're going that way. Strowley back inside. Stransky! Stransky has the try, but must surely put South Africa very firmly in the driving seat. Well, can you believe it? The crowd have gone absolutely wild. That was a marvellous try from South Africa. Wonderful position set up, and really, the three experts up here all said they'd go right, and they did. Lovely inside ball to Stransky. From there, he's unstoppable, and that could be the decisive score. Well, you're welcome to the SA Rugby Podcast. It's great to have you on here. Uh, firstly, before we get into the serious matters, just uh, give us a bit of a glimpse. What have you been up to during lockdown in the last few months? Hey, Leon. So, firstly, it's a, it's a great pleasure and a great privilege to be on the SA Rugby podcast and and lovely to be chatting. And a uh, long time to see. It's been a, been a while since Rugby World Cup, really, I think, is about the last time I saw you. Um, no, that's right. Yeah, so lockdown has not been without its challenges, but I think every cloud has a silver lining. And uh, as much as, um, you know, we have a number of businesses and one or two are listed in the emergency services um List. So, you know, I've carried on working as per normal, which has been uh, no blessing in, in most ways. And unfortunately, our businesses have carried on as per normal. So we have been blessed. But the silver lining has undoubtedly been a little bit more time at home and spending a bit more time with my wife and my son. My daughter's not with us at the moment. But, you know, to spend time, especially with my son, who's, who's 18 or 19 now and who's at varsity, it's, uh, it's been wonderful to get to know the young man again and to spend time with him. Yeah, I think that's one of the the upsides of lockdown is you know to spend time with your loved ones. Uh, obviously, we are we are here to talk about the Rugby World Cup and especially 1995. Um, it's amazing to think that it's been 25 years already. Uh, the other day, you know, you saw people post their pictures of where they were for that opening match against Australia in Cape Town, and uh, it feels like yesterday when we had that reunion at at Emirates Airline Park just five years ago. Yeah. Um, Looking back at it, uh, you know, what happened in 1995, what are your overriding thoughts looking back and in, in, in what happened in South Africa and with the Springboks at that time? Yeah, well, firstly, I mean, I think you, you've made me feel quite old there, right? And 
<laughs> because it is 25 years and I'm actually growing a little beard at the moment just in lockdown and it's looking very grey, which just tells me it is a long time ago. <laughs> no, so I look back with uh, very proud and very fond memories. You know, it was, um, it was a, I think firstly, you almost have to differentiate the time into two or three different key elements. One was the time as a, as a young South African in a period of uncertainty. And, and secondly, it was a time as a rugby player, you know, and I think those times, as you look back with, a, a, you know, maybe a bit more maturity and a bit more wisdom as you get older, you come to realize the significance of both of those, you know, parallel entities for want of a better way of describing it. As, as a young rugby player, it was an unbelievably special time. You know, we just wanted to play the game. We just wanted to get on the field and take on the best in the world and and uh, improve ourselves and, and try and do the best we possibly could. And we were fortunate that, that the best we could do was enough to win it, which was unbelievable. But more significantly, as a, as a young South African, to, to be able to look back and understand that, you know, we did something that was incredibly special at the time for our country, that that the, great, the greatest leader of all time, Madiba Nelson Mandela, used to, you know, unite a nation and bring people from, you know, a whole lot of different lifestyles and cultures together. You know, that is probably the most significant thing. And when I look back, uh, it is the part that is um, that comes with the warm and fuzzy feelings. Of course, uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk a bit more about Madiba and his influence a bit later. But let's just go back to the tournament and we start at the beginning. The, the opening match, a packed Newlands in Cape Town. It was a beautiful sunny day, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Looking at that game, which was special for you in another in another way as well, but the win, how important was it to start off the tournament on a, on a winning note against a very, very good Australian outfit who were also the defending champions? Yeah, so just thinking about it, I get goosies, you know, and what brings the goosies to me, the thoughts are, you know, we got to meet Madiba for the first time. He flew in and, and chatted to us before the game, a day, a day or two before the game. We arrived at Newlands through the buzzing crowd and Cape Town was on fire that day. You know, it was just this this mass of people from all different cultures waving the new South African flag, waving the Springbok flag, showing their support for us. It was just absolutely incredible. And, and as you said, the weather was divine. It was a great day to you know, move the ball around and play this um, pretty brand of rugby and and, and and what a day for us as, as South African rugby players to beat Australia, the defending world champs, um, at Newlands in the opening game. And and Kitch Christie, I think, had always, you know, mentored us and bred us and and cultivated our thought process to that game. We trained for however long it was, five or six months, to play Australia in the opening game and to win that game. And I think the focus was critical. We were unbelievably fit. We, you know, we'd researched them and we... We knew exactly, you know, how to beat them, and we stuck to our, our game plan. And unfortunately, again, you know, it came off on the day. But we, we did play really, really well on that day, and that set us up for the high road to to Rugby World Cup victory. And and the low road would have been catastrophic, as Australia found out. And then there's something that I think not a lot of people might know, but on that day, you became the first Springbok ever to drop, place, and score in a test. Um, a try, a conversion, four penalty goals, and a drop goal. Um, you must be pretty proud of that achievement, Joel. Yeah, so, you know, I think um, personal records have never really been something that's inspired or driven me. But, it, you know, it was, it's nice to know that you've done something that, that you were the first to do it. And, uh, and obviously that lives with me. But, you know, if I think back, the drop goal, I've got to tell you, the drop goal was, I mean, I think 
I think James Dalton could have kicked it that day. It was right in front of the pole. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, I couldn't really miss. And, and, and James Small, who was, you know, a great friend of mine, he was the guy shouting at me, kick it over, kick it over, because there was not a lot, a lot else on. Um, you know, so it was, it was just one of those days. The try, the set, move worked. It was, it was just a day when all the little parts of the puzzle came together. Being in a different era, you know, it was before the game turned professional. There were fewer teams in the competition. So the format was a bit different. Uh, you guys played only three pool matches. And apart from that match against Australia, to be fair, I don't think the box really set the world alight against Romania and Canada. The scores were pretty low. And we know what Springbok supporters are like. They they want you to absolutely thrash these mono unions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, you know, as they are known. But but you know it's not as easy as people think it is. Um was it ever an issue in the team that 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 you didn't really put Romania or Canada away completely? No, I don't think so. You know, so I mean, there were there was there were two sides to both those stories. I mean, one is if I remember correctly, Kitch made uh, uh, probably thirteen changes to the team that played against Romania the, a couple of days later, and and everyone got a run out and, and got a chance. Um, so that wholesale change meant that there was you know probably not the rhythm that you'd expect in the side. Um, and Romania were, were gutsy and determined. And I think we, we played terribly. We scored two pushover tries. I think that was about the extent of it and a couple of penalties. It was it was horrible. And and then, of course, Canada was a, was a completely different story because just moments before kickoff, the lights went out and we had to go back in the change room for 40 minutes. And I think the Canadians would probably be the first to admit that they tried to play a game plan that would disrupt us, that was aggressive, that was um, at times maybe a little feisty, um, and to be fair, you know, we 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 didn't exactly rise to the occasion, and we got suckered into playing in that sort of uh, bashing, bruising, physical, fighting, you know, confrontational type game, and 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 it lost momentum, it lost rhythm, and 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 we weren't good. But um, you know, sometimes those those tough victories are the ones that set you up because you know if you play badly and you still win, it's the sign of a good side. We did that two games in a row, and by the time we got to Samoa in the quarterfinal, there was a, you know, there was a hardness about us. We'd, we'd been through some, we'd endured the, some of the hardship. We'd beaten Australia as well. And and I think we'd set ourselves up well to to improve. And we went in there not feeling at all overconfident. And, and, and just looking at that Canadian game down in PE, you know, it will, it, like, you, like you mentioned, the lights uh, failed before kickoff and then it was a, it was a tough old match. And, and after the match, you guys lost two Pretty vital players, Peter Hendrick yeah. and James Dalton. Um, how, how tough was it losing two of those, you know, quite influential players before going into uh, the top eight of the World Cup? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, look, it was a tough week for us because a couple of us carried bad injuries. I had a cut on my eye and didn't play for 10 days. I didn't run for 10 days. Um, Hannah Stratum had a, had a, you know, really nasty gash for all, all you know, involved in, in nasty incidents. And then, of course, the, the two sending offs or, or, or suspensions and guys getting kicked out. But, but you know, that again, it, um, th- those things can either break a side or they can galvanize a side. And, and we, had, we had great leadership. You know, Mourne de Pissi as a mentor and as a fatherly figure, Kitch as a coach, um, the backup, the assistant coaches, Edward Griffiths as CEO of SA Rugby, Francois as, as captain and the leadership within the team. You know, we, we, we came through that process... In, uh, in 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 as better shape as one could, having been through something as as destructive as that. You know, it wasn't ideal to lose two great players, mm-hmm. 
um, but but we came through well. And of course, the added bonus, and and I feel for Peter Hendricks when I say this is, as much as we lost Peter Hendricks, we gained Chester Williams, and and Chester was just this unbelievable player, but an iconic hero that that became the symbol of our side. You know, so again, you know, maybe a silver lining around a, a very dark cloud. Yeah, well, obviously the, the Chester story is a great one. He initially missed out on selection in the squad due to injury. And um, he, and he came back, not under the best circumstances, but he was back when you guys needed him, and that was against Samoa. And and he came in and he scored four tries against them. Um, you know, to, to, to have a squad and to have players come in at that vital stage of, of, of the tournament can be up, upsetting. But because Chester was there before, and I think Narkam probably tra- trained with you guys before as well, it, it probably wasn't as upsetting as you would have thought. Yeah, 100% right. And 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 I think both those players, Naka and Chester, came with you know great experience, great pedigree. Um, Chris Rousseau stepped up into the starting lineup. As you said, Chester scored four tries in that game against Samoa and, and, and was just outstanding in the knockout stages. You know, everyone just put their hand up and, and was counted. And and I think the fact that, that Kitch Christie all along had you know used a bigger training group that that the almost non non travelling reserves had been part of the initial process, were just as fit, just as strong, understood the game plan. You know, meant the transition for them was was a whole lot easier, and meant that there was no real disruption to the side. So now, you know, moving on, the next match was against uh, a very strong French side in Durban. Um, the the rain came down, yeah, yes. <laughs> and 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 kickoff was postponed for the second time for you guys in yeah. a match with the real possibility of the match actually being cancelled at all, which would have meant the end of the Springboks in the Rugby World Cup that year. What do you remember about that game in Durban? So you know the one thing that I, I do remember is um, Dan Ratif coming to me. Uh, I don't know while we were waiting in that in that holding pattern, and you know, I'd walked outside to see what was happening, and we was. We were just biding time and looking to see what was, you know, transpiring, and and Dan came to me and he said, "I cannot believe you're so calm. How how are you managing to stay so calm? You know." And, and I, I remember just I always loved getting to the ground. When I got to the ground, I sort of found that the nerves started to settle and it became a whole lot calmer. And 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 for whatever reason, it it was just I just had a feeling we would play. I had a feeling everything would take place, and and I was pretty calm about it. But Boy, it was wet. It was absolutely bucketing down. There were pools of water everywhere. It was, it, it was doubtful that a game of rugby could have and should have been played on that field. But but the rain god smiled down on you guys and you managed to get the game underway and obviously won it in the end. Uh, but Lady Luck was also smiling a little bit on the Springboks that day because um, later on the great French forward Abdel Benazir actually claimed that he scored a try that wasn't given in the end. How close were you to that? And uh, do you think the referee got it right? Well, the rain gods definitely smiled and or stopped smiling, I should say, because they stopped raining a little bit. And I think more importantly, the, uh, the the squeegee gods came out and helped get the water off the field, which is, probably enabled us to play. Look, Abdul Benazi was a good friend of mine. I knew him well from um, a season I played in France. And, uh, and he came awfully close. And I'd like to think that whether he thinks he scored or James Small, who stopped him, thinks he didn't score, and they both are, are, are thinking their own things, um, I'd like to think the referee's decision was the right one. It's the one I'm going to stick to and it's the one we're going to take. But it was awfully close. I actually think when I look at that on video, I think he did come up marginally short, which is almost a minor miracle because in, in those wet conditions, 
I would have expected him to slide and have too much weight and power and slide sort of almost through James and over the line. But when he hit the ground, he, he hardly budged. And, and I think he did come up a little short, thank, thank goodness. But, you know, it wasn't the end there. We still camped on our line and we were under a little bit of pressure and we survived those last few minutes, which was a, a, a massive relief. And now we are five games in, five victories, and it's time for the big one against New Zealand. By then, uh, unstoppable with, with Jonah Lomu leading the charge. Um, do you agree with, with the, the, the general sentiment out there that the All Blacks probably started that final as the, as the favourites? And would you say that that would have helped strengthen your resolve going into the final? So I think you're 100% right. I, I think there's no doubt that they were the favourites going into the final. They... Um, they had a you know really strong pack of forwards, great loose forwards, good halfbacks, Andrew Mertens, great midfield pairing, and and, and as you've mentioned, the, you know attack out wide, second to no other team in the competition with the great Jonah, um, an absolute machine. You know, big, strong, powerful, great feet, great handoff, um, strong, just just the ultimate rugby player. And and uh, when when we looked at at, at them, the way they destroyed England on the Sunday afternoon semi-final, you know, we 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 probably initially thought, oh well, we've done well to make the final, and you know, if we can keep the score down, it'll be a, a good result. But the more we looked at it, the more we worked on the plan, the more we believed we could beat them, and and the more that resolve that you mentioned actually grew. And and I think um, what was probably most significant thereafter is that Jonah never ever scored a try against South Africa in his Test career. And that maybe is testament to the South African guts and grit and determination and 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 a, a, you know a sentiment that that this great player you know we would always defend well against him, which we certainly did on the day. Was there a specific plan for Jonah? And and if I if I look back at the match, you know the the Haka was quite a, a fired up affair. Quibus Visa marched a bit forward. Was there a special plan for Jonah and, and did it manifest in the way that you approached him during the Haka? So so not so much during the Haka. I think Quibus, you know, Quibus is a is a leader in his own right and and um he's the heartbeat of the you know aggressive nature of the of the pack of forwards. And I and I think the way he stepped forward and 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 almost led the charge at the Haka was was inspiring. It was for all of us. It was a sign of what you know what we would need to do to overcome this great All Black side. Um, I don't think it meant anything to Jonah, or it was aimed at Jonah in any way. It was it was accepting the, this wonderful challenge, the Haka, and it was laying down our own challenge. You know, and that's the spirit of this beautiful game of rugby union. As far as as Jonah himself was concerned, we we realised that if you give Jonah Long a one on one with any player in the world, he's going to win. There's no doubt about that. So. So we just said, look, we've got to, we've got to defend in a way that doesn't give him a bit of space, that that takes away the opportunity to use his fast feet, and, and and then on the back of that comes his, you know, incredible strength. So so we defended from the outside in. We instead of using the touchline as our last defender, we try to push him towards the midfield, the forwards. Um, Mark Andrews was playing number eight, you know, get a couple of big guys into that central area, and and to stop him by by using numbers, and and he did get through. Early on, once and Yost made a great tackle. I think Mark made another tackle on him. Of course, Yoppy Boulder made that great tackle in the corner. James stragged and held on and grappled to, you know, for all his worth to stop him whenever he was there, and 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 he did enough to hold him up until numbers got there. So, so yes, we had our own plan, and 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 on the day again, you know, it was it was well thought out, and it, it worked really well. And then uh, the match itself. 
nine all after 80 minutes and then uh, extra time. But you, you mentioned earlier how fit you guys were. So you were, you were probably ready to, to play another 20 minutes of, of high-level rugby um, against the All Blacks on that day at Ellis Park. Yeah, very much so. so. So just to go back a step, you know, in one of our hard training days, we used to fly up to Joburg every Monday, us guys from Cape Town, and meet up with a squad. Um, and uh, we would train from like 9 in the morning on a Monday till 5 o'clock. We'd, we'd have been on the early flight to Joburg, and we'd catch the last flight back to Cape Town, and everyone would, would go their way. It was a really tough training days. And, and one evening, we were at the end of um, our fitness session, and I was absolutely knackered. And Kitch Christie came over and he was chatting to me while we were doing our last little bit of exercise. And I said to him, Coach, you know, surely the most skillful side will win the World Cup. And he said to me right then and there, he said, no, Joel, the fittest team will win the World Cup. So, so when we stood in that little huddle after 80 minutes, he looked at us and he said, you guys have got them. He said, we're much fitter than them. We're stronger. We've already shown that in the last few minutes. We were starting to dominate. Just keep, just keep going now. You, you're going to win this one, and uh, and he was 100 percent right. We went from strength to strength. Um, I think they scored. They got the three points first. We equalised, and then the drop went over. And and at, when the final whistle went, we were camped down inside their 22, and we had them a little bit under the cost, you know. So so that 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 um, strategy, that theory about being about being the fittest team was 100 percent right. It's very similar to last year's final, if you think about it. The, the Springboks, despite being comfortably ahead on the, on the scoreboard, were, were deep in England's territory when the final whistle blew. But we're not going to talk about that now. We love um, talking about that as well. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll say something about it a bit later. For now... Sramsky, back in the pocket, has the chance to drop the goal. Back it comes to Sramsky. Up goes the kick. Stransky has kept his head. And with two minutes gone in the second period of extra time, South Africa's dream is alive once more. And it's absolutely unbelievable. The crowd has gone mad. Joel Stransky, beautiful scrum ball. No doubt what he was going to do. And he struck it straight between the uprights. Terrific kick from the Western Province outside half. We've seen that look before. They've just got to get the ball from the scrum and keep possession. It was early in the second half of extra time. Um, just talk us through the, the call that that led to that on the on the attack with the with the scrum on the right hand side of the field. What was the call from from Eust and and how did how did it all pan out? Yeah, so I mean, I think there were six minutes left in the game, and and it was twelve all, and we knew any points um, would be good enough because um, we felt that we were finishing stronger. But we needed to score twelve all; we wouldn't have won the World Cup. They would have won it because of the sending off laws. Um, and and so we called a back row move. It was a it was a nice, healthy blind side. There was good space there. We had uh, the prince of fullbacks, Andre Jabeir, who was going to come around that blind side using his great speed. Um, I think Brendan Fenton might have been on the wing already. Not sure James was was still on the field. I can't actually remember. But you know, when you attack with someone who's as quick off the mark as Rudolf Strali, who was who was then wearing the number eight shirt or was playing number eight, and you've got Eust, who was just this sensational runner, um, Juba and James or Brendan, you know, it's a it's a it's a powerful little. Quartet attacking that blind side into a bit of space. So we 
we had the set move. And when I looked up and saw how the the All Blacks were defending, um, I realised you know the the op- that that they knew what we were going to do. They 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 obviously knew what what our plan was. And and the fact that they bolstered the defence on that side meant there was a gap for the drop goal. And I called to Yost and said, "Look, let's change it, send the ball back, bring it, bring it to me, and let's take the three. And uh, you know, it's not often it's not often in in a, in a Springbok team that the players overrule the captain, but but fortunately we did, and fortunately it went over. I'll remember to ask Francois about that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like you said, there was still about six, seven, eight minutes left in the match. That must have been a very, very tense period in, in that final. Yeah, so, you know, when you get ahead like that, and and I think it was about six minutes left. When you get ahead like that, you you know, the, you, you don't think that the game's over. You never think it's over until that final whistle is, has gone, you know. So as we were running back to to go and receive the, the kickoff, I you know, got next to Francois. I said to him, listen, we just got to stay focused now, make sure we... We, we receive the kickoff well. We maul it forward a little bit. Let's kick it down there. And, and if they are going to have the ball, let's make sure they, you know, they've got to come from deep. And that's exactly what happened. Um, we trapped them inside their zone and they were forced to play. They couldn't kick it again because they, they needed to, you know, keep ball in hand to get points. And we, uh, we defended well and we stopped them down there. And, and as you say, pretty much like 2019, you know, when the final whistle went, we, we, we had them trapped down in that zone. And then those fa- those fabulous scenes followed. Um, Francois receiving the trophy from the late Nelson Mandela. Uh, you spoke about Madiba a bit earlier, but standing there on the field at that moment, seeing him wearing the number six jersey, that must have been that must have been a, a wonderful moment. And what what went through your through your mind at that stage? Yeah, so you know, we we were blessed because he came in the change room before and wearing that number six jersey, and so we'd seen him in the jersey. And I mean, you don't need to be any more motivated for a rugby world cup final but but you know to be inspired and touched by the magic of <clears throat> of that great man before a world cup final was just sensational for me my <clears throat> my um, favorite photo or memory from the rugby world cup by a long way is the photo of madiba just after presenting the trophy with his arms raised in his springbok shirt celebrating you know in in grand fashion at the springbok victory it's uh it just, for me, told the story of this most amazing man that he could use this um, beautiful sport, the sport of rugby union, to join a nation together, to get them to unite uh, around a sports team and that, that he thoroughly loved every moment of the experience. And, uh, and, uh, and a great moment it was. Unfortunately, it wasn't all happiness since then. Time has moved on. Madiba has passed away. Kitch Christie, Ruben Crea and Joost van der Vestas and have all passed away. And last year, uh, James Small and Chester Williams also sadly passed away. Um, it must be tough to <clears throat> so many of your teammates at such a young age. They, they, were, still, they were still pretty young. Yeah, you're right. And, and in fact, there's two more that passed away. Russell Mulholland was our media liaison and Ron Holder was part of the medical team, you know, and they've both passed away as well. So it is tough, you know, and I think... Um, it's always tough when when someone passes away and when they're older it's like a little less tough maybe but when when Ruben passed away at such a young age from the brain tumor and then last year with with James and Chester passing in in, in such a short space of time you know it, it 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 puts perspective on life I think it um makes you you know look around and appreciate life a little bit differently and maybe it's a lesson to all of us to not take anything for granted and maybe covid-19 is you know, helped add to to those lessons, but to lose um, <clears throat> iconic 
friends like that, to lose Joost in the way he passed away. And, and, and in fact, Joost probably set this unbelievable example in the face of adversity, the way he fought right to the end. It's, um, it's awfully tough and it, 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 does, you know, it does make you reflect a little bit and think differently about life. Then a bit more uh, recent and more, more, more happy, uh, a more happy topic, if I can say so. We've since gone on to win the World Cup twice. Um, yeah. Just give us your thoughts on, on the classes of John Smith, 2007, and Siakulisi from last year. Yeah, so I think, I mean, 2007 was special in its own way. And, and John is a great friend of mine, and I have in, in, enormous respect for him and, and what a team that was in 2007. Um, special achievements, but I think if if we really are brutally honest about everything, this, this you know Sia and the team of 2019 is just quite possibly the the greatest example of all for us. You know, Sia as an individual is just this um, this man who's come from such a different background. So hard to describe the hardship he grew up with, and and and, and without it's, it, you know, becoming like a fairy tale because. It is a fairy tale in so many ways, but it's the story of great courage. It's the story of, you know, of perseverance, of determination. It's the story of a man who set his mind to something and achieved this incredible goal. And in doing so, led led this group of inspired and motivated people who shared the common goal with him to this, this great victory from nowhere. You know, 18 months ago, and I was privileged to share part of the journey with the Springboks having, you know, been in New Zealand and Australia commentating, you know, two years ago and, been a little part of the journey and handed out the, the jerseys at, at, at once or twice. You know, it's just it's just such an incredible story. And 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 I think again, '95 was special for us as South Africans because of the timing for our country. 2019 was special because of the timing and because of the leadership of this great man, Sia Khaleesi. I mean, what an example he is to all of us. On on one of those trips back from New Zealand, I sat next to him on the airplane and I spent a lot of time chatting to him and. Um, Boy, he's a, he's a man you just have to love and you have to respect. He's just the most incredible guy. Very, very true. And and hopefully this this uh, chapter of theirs isn't finished yet because next year we are due to welcome the Lions to South Africa. Now, unfortunately for you, your last test came in 1996, so you just missed out on playing against the Lions in 97. But you were in the UK at that stage and you played for Leicester, which yeah. was uh, one of the powerhouse clubs in, in England. Uh, so you must have seen things... Uh, you know how they experience the Lions from that from that perspective. Maybe give us a little bit of insight into you know the importance of the Lions and what <clears> we <throat> can expect from them when they when they arrive in South Africa next year. Well, I was very privileged to play that Leicester Tiger side, and it had I think of in in the probably in the starting lineup of fifteen players, we probably had seven or eight, or maybe maybe even ten players who were on that British and Irish Lions tour of 1997, captained of course by. Martin Johnson, who was the Leicester Tigers captain um, at, at the time, you know. So, so I did. I was privileged to get a little insight into it. And for for those in the UK, it's um, it is this one time every four years where where players from different countries, where fans from these four different nations, four different countries, come together. They put all their differences aside. They join hands and they they go forth and they try and beat one of the old foes from the southern hemisphere. It is steeped in tradition. It is steeped in this culture that you have to love and, and respect. And it is steeped in absolute loyalty to, to the United Kingdom Kingdom and to this, this magnificent red jersey that the, the British and Irish Lions wear. And, and and it can never be, you know, taken for granted and never underestimated. And next year will be just 
fantastic. It'll be obviously a very strong team that'll come out and play. It'll they'll have thousands and thousands of supporters who will make the journey. Um, come and enjoy our hospitality. They'll be wonderful tourists. They'll drink all our beer. They'll drink the red wine. They'll stay in our hotels and they'll spend lots of money here. But most importantly, they will be part of this great sport and in, in, in supporting the British and Irish Lions that makes this an experience not not to miss. Tickets will be very hard to come by for all of us because they will buy up all the tickets and they'll support their team. It's going to be unbelievably special, Dion. Yeah, I think it's something that that a lot of people are are quite excited about. Obviously, you know, being in lockdown and missing the game, missing the action. Hopefully, we'll be back on the on the field pretty soon, and hopefully, we'll see you back at one of those matches soon. Joel, thanks so much for your time yet again. It was a it was a privilege speaking to you and reminiscing about a, a wonderful time in our rugby history. And uh, yeah, good luck on that side. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show, and uh, I look forward to seeing you and having a good laugh on the side of the field and maybe chatting about our mountain biking exploits again. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and please join us again for the next SA Rugby podcast. For more, click on springbox.rugby or check out our social media channels.